And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So today on the program, I have Carla Valentine. She's the technical curator over at St. Bartholomew's Pathology Museum in the UK, and she's a trailblazer in the death industry. So not only is she organizing and cataloging 100-year-old historic human remain, the specimens of former pathologies, diseases, deformities, things like that in history. She also runs Dead Meat, which is um, a death industry networking and dating site, as well as she's a recent author of Past Mortems, where she kind of describes her life and how she got into this whole world. Uh, and it is just fascinating, the things that she does. She's got her hands in all kinds of pots, no pun intended, because you'll learn that pots are actually the things that uh, that's where the human remains are preserved. They're called a pot. So that was a really bad joke, a good pun, uh, an okay pun. Let's give it that. But let, let's get into that, Carla. Thank you for being on the program, by the way. But I, I want to jump right into this because what you do is so interesting. So you basically repair and preserve historic human remains? That's right, yeah. So I am, um, yeah, they're already preserved. Like a lot, well, a lot of them have been preserved for, you know, 100 or 200 years. And I'm kind of helping them on the journey because, you know, they they can become um, really, I don't know, covered in mold, the fluids can leak, that kind of thing. So I basically conserve them. That's what I do. I repair and conserve. Well, now, isn't there some kind of, there's a, there's a law that, because you guys are a museum, and so you, some of the stuff is mm-hmm. on display there, and you're you're kind of preserving them. But isn't there a law that after a cert, if they're a certain amount of years old, anyone can see them, right? Yeah. Okay. So in the UK, we're probably the only country that has a kind of government body like this called the Human Tissue Authority. <laughs> and what they have decided, I know, and it sounds crazy, it sounds, right? Like yeah. they can go so go draconian, around with right? guns, game. <laughs> Yeah, what are you doing with human tissue? But that's what they're called, Human Tissue Authority. They were formed in 2004. And um, they basically have um, uh, sort of lots of different laws for different scheduled purposes, of which one might be public display, one might be autopsy, one might be anatomy in medical schools. Um, And the law with public display is that um, anybody can see the specimens if they're over 100 years old. But if they're under 100 years old, you have to have a public display license. So there's this sort of arbitrary um, date change, really, you know, from when, when they can be seen by the public and when they can't. Well, now, if, if something's under 100 years and you need a license, how do you get a mm. license? you have to pay for it? Do you need permission? How does that work? Yeah, it's a mixture of the two. You pay for it because you obviously have to pay for the human tissue authority to come and vet you in a way. They come and they do, um, you know, not test. They they kind of come and give you an inspection. There's a lot of paperwork involved. You have to make sure that you have the security measures in place that would allow you to have the public in and obviously not run away with the specimens. They need to make sure that there's somebody there that can care for the specimens, somebody like me. And that the, you know, the environment is good for the specimens that they're not going to 
explode because that believe me that can be a problem yeah. depending on the temperature and what, what the specimens are in <laughs> wait, wait so, hold, you know, hold on it can basic... really explode yeah you want to get back to that right <laughs> yeah hold on go back to that you, i obviously don't mean combustion wise but you mean from just yeah rot and bacteria and gases yeah it's more to do with the gases because specimens were always um we we call it we call them potted you know preserved potted is like um a kind of just a you know colloquial term for it and they were potted in glass for years and years and years and then in the sort of 40s and 50s a lot of people decided that plastic was a good idea as you'll, you'll know from many different things you know bakelite was invented you know acrylic and that kind of thing and so a lot of the specimens were then repotted into acrylic pots and those pots have joins in them so they're very square or rectangular the um the different sides of them are all stuck together with chloroform um and they actually have pores in them as well some of them like micro pores so if they have micro pores then it means that the fluid will evaporate out very gradually if they don't really have any micro pores what can happen is the the plastic can become concave and the gases can build up and then at some point the join can just completely explode and it has happened in, you know, various museums. So we have to keep an eye on the specimens in that way. But it doesn't happen with the glass, but it happens with the plastic. Now, you mean the entire pot will explode, not just like the specimen will yeah. explode in it? Yeah, oh not the specimen God. itself. I mean, the specimen is usually fine, thankfully, because that's preserved in fluid and that will just end up on the floor. But the pot itself can wow. actually just sort of go right, you know, oh, funny enough. <laughs> Yeah, so so my job, one of my kind of passions is to actually repot the specimens back into glass because we have an awful lot of old glass containers up in my workshop that have had specimens in them and the specimens themselves have had to be thrown away because they've, you know, become mouldy or, or whatever. But the glass is really hard wearing, really intact. And once it's cleaned, it looks brand new. So I like to repot a lot of the plastic specimens into the glass and then make them look vintage. And obviously it stabilizes them as well. So that's a, that's a good thing. Now, when you say repot, this kind of brings up images mm. of taking a plant out of a, you know, out of a pot and cleaning off the roots and like sticking it in a brand new pot. Is that similar to what mm. you do? It is actually. Yeah, pretty much. It is. Um, most of the specimens are, um, with, with the acrylic pots, they tend to be actually kind of stitched onto a clear acrylic backboard a lot of the time. So um, if I take it, you know, take a specimen out of a rectangular pot and I want to put it in a, say, <clears throat> a cylindrical glass pot, then I would have to take that off, off the, um, the, the sort of acrylic black back plate and then I would suspend it myself in the new glass pot using specific thread we have to use a kind of um wax coated linen because that stops the fluid from wicking up the thread so yeah it is kind of the same in that you sort of you, you take you know the specimen out of one pot and maybe tidy it up a little bit clean it rehang it and then pop it in the new in the new pot wow and you are responsible at your job so you're the curator at the pathology museum at saint bartholomew's and is that correct? Yeah. So that they get that mouthful out properly without screwing it up? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Technical curator. Yeah, that's right. Um, so basically the technical is there because it means that I'm actually hands-on with the human remains as opposed to, you know, other type of curatorial work. Right, who just walks <laughs> so around I'm and points at stuff. You're hands-on with the hands. Yeah, I'm hands-on, yeah. Hands-on to the hands, hands-on to the feet, yeah, right. hands-on to all the different human body parts. <laughs> and you catalog can serve and repair 5,000 specimens? Like, what is the catalog? Logging look like that's got to mm -hmm. be uh, I, I imagine you probably find it fun mm -hmm. it sounds super tedious to me 
yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it can look tedious because if you're just using an Excel, Excel spreadsheet just to kind of write all the different details in, then that's just for me. That's just so I know what's where. But we also have an online catalogue which has photographs of the specimens um, as well as information and the students can use that. But we're also working on one that will go on our website in the end and that'll be for the general public. And that'll be really interesting because they'll be able to look at photographs of specimens such as Chinese bound feet, for example, see the specimen from different angles, um, digitally be able to kind of turn it round, you know, 360 degrees and then learn all about the history of why Chinese feet were bound and why the specimen's important, really, you know, why we, we've kept it and where it came from. So, so there's a few different different sort of stages of the cataloging. Wow. Yeah, I mean, bound feet are, are some pretty, that's, that's a very interesting cultural phenomenon. Uh, let's get into, mm. I want to get into some of the pathology, the stuff that you have there in a minute. But I want to talk about you for a second, Carla. Let's focus this on mm -hmm. you for a second. Okay. How in the world <laughs> did you end up where you are? Well, how did this whole thing, how did this, this love and obsession with death start? Mm. I don't know, you know, I, I, I always just think it's fate because it was something that I always wanted to do. And it's really difficult to explain that to people that you're a seven, eight, nine year old child and you go, I want to work in a morgue. I want to work with dead bodies. And that's what I want to do. And I never wanted to do anything else. But I think that for some people is a little bit like a calling, like a priest might have or a nun or I don't know, a doctor maybe. Um, it was something that I was interested in from when I was very young because I was really interested in biology. I started to read when I was about two years of age. So when I was 10, I was reading Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, that kind of thing. And I think I just was fascinated by the idea of the human body being a sort of canvas that you could um, read, you know, the story of what happened to them. And so I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what the job was until I was in my teens. And I realized, ah, I can be a mortician's assistant. So that was where I kind of went into. I did forensics at university and did voluntary work at a mortuary. Well, now, you, now that, when you, when you had that volunteer work, that wasn't your first time handling a dead body now, was it, Carla? first time no it wasn't no. yeah because i because i knew what i wanted to do um and um you know i mentioned it in my book is that one I, I took a year out as many people do and i took a year out to go and work with an embalmer as an embalmer's assistant at a funeral home and it was there that i really um realized that i was absolutely fine with the deceased i could do the job i really enjoyed it and i knew then that you know that was going to be the pathway for me for the rest of my life really oh i'm going further than back than that carla let's go back to the first time mm. that you got into this which is also in your book i like that little plug you snuck in there past mortems uh we'll get to that, <laughs> we'll get to that in a second but in your book you talk about having a funeral procession procession for a cat where you you see a cat on the side of the road and you want to see it properly taken care of and you were really young when this happened right tell me about that yeah yeah that's right i mean this is something that's quite common with a lot of different children so it's it's um i mean it might sound weird i don't know maybe it's just common in certain parts of the world but when you're around sort of seven, eight, nine, you begin to become aware of your mortality. You begin to understand as a, as a human being that, you you know, you will die one day. Very young children don't have that. 
it kind of hits at a certain point. And um, yeah, you know, I was fascinated by the idea of of death because I knew it was going to happen to me at some point. And if it did, I wanted to make sure that I was well looked after. And as friends, you know, long before the days of iPhones and, you know, Playstations, we, we used to do, we used to play outside. That's what we did. We played outside and we climbed trees and did all these things. And if we what? found Kids cats, did that? You know, How sort long of like, ago was that? Yeah, I know. Tell me, yeah, yeah, back outside. in those days when we used to burn turn calories. Turn of the century, outside. right? Yeah, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah. It actually was a turn of the century. That was like 2000. You know. <laughs> oh god i'll go way back before then um yeah so you know we'd be out and we'd be you know playing out in fields and we'd be in the park and we'd find dead animals and we'd find roadkill you know cats that have been knocked over and and yeah we'd, we'd we you know me and my friends would give them funerals because it's what we saw on tv and it's what we thought was right to do and we'd give them funerals say a few words um and and bury them and yeah that was just something that i guess stuck with me more than it stuck with the other people who then went on to be you know teachers and hairdressers and whatever they went on to be <laughs> I, I, I just stayed on that path <laughs> well you know it's kind of interesting because we've evolved as human beings as, and as animals as well if, we're, if you're not a scavenger you've you, you've evolved the sense to kind of repulse that which is dead especially of your own species so what always what always strikes yeah. me as interesting is people who do work with dead humans because we're evolved not to do that um, but before I get to that, you know, it's funny because there, there is another group of people who talk about dead things when they're kids and mess with dead animals. And that's serial killers, Carla. They do the same thing. You didn't yeah. go on that path, mm -hmm. but they are technically part mm -hmm. of the death industry. Um, and you also make this. <laughs> they are, right? <laughs> they're they're producers. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're being paid for what they do, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, in a way. Um, but with, yeah. you, know, you make this really interesting <laughs> point in your book, which kind of stuck with me. And you said that there's a very intimate mm. connection between the eviscerator and the evisceratee, which there, mm. is a, there is a connection there. And I think that in some ways, there are some serial killers who do have that kind of connection. It's how they can feel kind of intimate with people. Um, but you, mm -hmm. you know, you're on, that's a pathology, obviously, but you don't have that. Yeah. And I always wonder, like, where does, you know, where does someone know when to walk the right line? It's just, you know, it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. to me, you know, like how you went one way and other yeah. people go another. Other people go another. Okay, yeah. So I can definitely see, see that comparison because I think I even kind of make a joke in the book about how my mom was just like happy that I wasn't, you know, going to become a serial killer. So what you're, you're you're describing is the McDonald triad, which is something that many serial killers um, will illustrate, and that will be torturing small animals, um, wetting the bed, um, starting fires. So that's a classic sign of somebody who's going to become a serial killer. So the difference with me is that I didn't kill any animals. Um, serial killers will tend to kill animals, whereas we obviously just found dead animals and were fascinated by the fact that they were dead and trying to come to terms with our own mortality so that's the kind of difference really between what what you do as a mortician and what you would do as a serial killer so there's definitely an intimacy um as an eviscerator an evisceratee and the same way that there's an intimacy uh, between, you know, a, a pathologist and their patient or um, even a plastic surgeon and their patient, because the plastic surgeon 
may know their patient way more than their other half does, you know, because they mm-hmm. see them, the inside of them. Um, but it's the it's the kind of um, the motivation behind it that makes it different, you know. A serial killer's motivation for that intimacy is to cause somebody pain, and it's probably mm-hmm. the only way that they can get any intimacy. Whereas I, thankfully, <laughs> have a wonderful <laughs> fiance who I've been with for five years. Right. <laughs> we get married this year, and I can express my intimacy in a normal human way. So yeah. I I think that's the, that's the difference, you know, is that that's the only way that they can do it. Whereas with us, it's, it's more an intimacy in terms of how we we want to do our job well as as a mortician or you know pathology technologist or, or pathologist. We want we want to be intimate with, with our patients because we want to do our job well, and that's really really important for the family. Well, and I'll tell you the the biggest you know the, the most promising. Thing that you mentioned in that statement is that you're you have a fiance and he's still alive if he wasn't mm. then we would know that you were a serial killer and that you're just pretending oh yeah yeah yeah. then it would be yeah i mean be very sometimes, obvious you know i've Carla. had my thoughts but you know when he doesn't do the dishes it's it's you know we i walk a fine line but <laughs> no, he's, he's he's alive and kicking believe me okay good 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 um, I, don't, I need to ask to put him on the phone, right? He's, we can, uh, I will take your word for it. I'll take your word for it for right now. He's, he's actually, he's actually whack sealing our wedding invitations as we speak. So, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it can't be all that bad, right? Yeah, he's going to marry me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so now, now, so this kind of went on and, and so you, you kind of progressed and then you, you know, you became, so you became a, someone who really does autopsies, like someone who, I guess yeah. we call them, we call them a coroner here. Like there are people who work for the state, but you, you would dissect dead bodies and weigh organs and all that stuff. What's kind of funny is mm-hmm. the, the reason why I, you know, I could never do this is I watch too many horror mm. movies and I mean this sincerely. I would, I would mm. genuinely be afraid if one of them opened their eyes, uh, they would come up and grab yeah. me. But, no, I would, I would have a genuine fear of that. So I, I don't think I could ever, oh, okay. I don't think I could even be in a, a morgue. Oh, really? I don't think so. So I, I wonder, um, have, have you watched the film The Autopsy of Jane Doe at all then? Uh, I have not, but I do believe you were a consultant on that, weren't you? I, I worked on it, yeah, exactly, and a lot of that sort of thing happens. So I just, you know, I wasn't just listening in there for the, you know, purposes of advertising, but you know, that that is one of those typical films, I suppose, that plays to that fear that you have. But I think, I mean, you have to. I suppose you have to think about it this, from this point of view. I'm coming at this from a, 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 from a scientific point of view because I'm a scientist trained, and I think people forget that because there's an awful lot of people out there now that work in death industries from, from different angles completely. But I have friends that can buy molecular science at university, um, and I'm a scientist, and I know that bodies will not wake up simply, you know. Yeah. So for me, I don't have that fear. When, when I'm in a mortuary, I mean... Even the idea that cadavers can groan and sit up is an, an urban legend. Every now and again, you may get the odd a slight burp or slight fart, but it's not not anything that would make you jump. Um, and Sounds so, comical, somebody actually. like me who's well, you know, in a way, but usually you're listening to music. You know, it's like um, when you have surgery. I mean, I've, I've undergone so many different surgeries, and I've spoken about that, and it doesn't bother me any that I know my surgical team will be listening to the radio while they're doing the surgery because that's what people do. So you don't tend to notice that kind of thing. Um, so for me, yeah, I, I, I don't feel unsafe if I'm in a mortuary. I don't think to myself, oh, you know, 
imagine if I heard banging from the inside of the fridge because the likelihood is if that happened it was because the paws had got locked in there by mistake <laughs> you know it's <laughs> not going to be because one of the deceased woke up um yeah. but yeah for me it was, it was peaceful you know I find it peaceful I would find it much more challenging to work in um A&E with live people you know mm-hmm. spitting blood at me or people who were drunk and of people who were in pain that is terrifying to me so I think it just completely depends on on, on how you come at it really yeah sure no I, I think you're exactly right I th- I'm the one who's got the problem I just genuinely believe and, and no matter how long I was working be, no matter how long I'd be working in there I would think at some point no one of them is going to wake up it's just it's, it's just that's just math you know like one of them has to wake yeah. up yeah <laughs> eventually yeah. well you just got to remember that thing that Caleb Wilde said you know if any deceased come into the mortuary you tie their shoelaces together and then if there's a zombie apocalypse it would be hilarious <laughs> That's, that's so, good advice. That's, no, that's, that's how you combat it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant advice hidden in the in the envelope of a joke. I love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of hilarious, I don't mean to keep making connections between you and a serial killer, although I am finding it very funny that I'm accidentally doing that. But let's talk about some of the equipment. Yeah, that you thanks use. for that. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> let's talk about some of the equipment because they have funny mm. names. And essentially, you have all the equipment you need to dismember a human body, not unlike Dexter. I don't know if you have that show in the UK, but it's... Oh, I absolutely love Dexter. In in fact, I'm going to be in Cornwall. I've just got to say, I'm going to be in Cornwall at a festival with him at the weekends, and I'm so excited to be meeting him. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) That's really cool. Um, So so I'm going to give you a couple of these things. You tell me what they're used for, although I'm pretty sure it's in the name. But we have have a brain knife. We have rib shears, a skull key, bone nibblers. um, And I believe the P – what's your scalpel? It's the PM40, which can – PM40. Yeah, and that can cut through tin cans, I think, right? Yeah, so, um, I mean, do you want me to kind of describe what they're all for, or is it self-evident with a lot of them? Yeah, let's talk about them. Yeah, so, you know, brain knives are, um, they are very long knives. They tend to be disposable nowadays. They used to just be um, very sharp, long, sharp blades that you would have to resharpen every now and again. And they have to be incredibly sharp because people don't realize that brains are very, very soft. They are like blancmange. It's unbelievable how soft brains are. So in order to slice through them, the the brain knife is, I mean, I don't know what it is in kind of like micro, you know, whatever micro pieces, (laughs) but it's incredibly, incredibly sharp, put it that way. So a brain knife is very specific. Yeah, it looks like a samurai sword, kind of, Um, you know little bit shorter um bone nibblers very cute sounding they adorable. are <laughs> sounds adorable. Uh, yeah yeah a bit, they look a little bit like wire cutters and they're just to remove small small chunks of, of bone in case we need to check those for you know various different substances um rib shears again a very specific tool they tend to um they do look a little bit like bolt cutters but then they're made of stainless steel and we use those to cut through the, they're called rib shears, but we cut through the costal cartilage if we can. Mm-hmm. So everybody's um, chest, everybody's rib cage is made up of bone on either side. And then costal cartilage through the middle, um, and then that attaches to the sternum. And the costal mm. cartilage is much softer. So you would you would cut through that, and it's much neater. Um, if you cut through the bone, it can actually splinter. So then that can cause problems because the bone fragments can go through your gloves. 
Mm. And it can be, you know, a health risk, an infection risk. And the older people get, that costal cartilage begins to ossify and mm. it gets much much more bone-like. So rib shears, but again, they have to be really, really um, sharp. And yeah, you know, um, skull keys or T keys, we call them, they are literally to pop into the gap between um, what we've made with the sole and then we twist it and then it kind of pops the top of the skull off, the calvarium. Um, and a PM4 is a very big scalpel. Yeah, so much more, much bigger than a usual scalpel. And that's what we use to make most of our incisions, the, the iconic Y incision. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was in school and we had to do dissections and everything, mm. they'd always give us a scalpel. And I remember it never cutting mm. through anything. So I have absolutely zero faith in the cutting ability of a scalpel. But you, on the other hand, this is your trusty sidekick, mm. basically, is the PM40. So how good is this thing? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, both scalpels and PM40s are incredibly sharp if they are treated the way that they should be treated. And I think I mentioned in the book that every, every blade comes in its own envelope. So what we would do is we would put our scalpel blade or our PM40 blade onto, onto the handle, but we would leave the, the packaging over the blade. And that's because it is possible for molecules of oxygen in the air as they sort of buffet against the blade to dull it. So my my sort of sense says to me that the technicians in your labs or whatever weren't weren't sort of expert enough <laughs> in blade science. And what they were probably doing was removing the sheaths or even reusing older blades. They may have been disinfecting them and reusing them. Mm -hmm. But when, when they're, they're new, they are dangerous because even um, when we wear pairs of gloves we used to wear two pairs of gloves we'd wear some cut proof gloves between those two and yet a scalpel tip can still penetrate between you know all those layers and it can still give you problems if you're dealing with somebody that has what we would call a high-risk infection so hepatitis oh, wow. or hiv so if you you know so that, that's how sharp they are so I, I don't know what was going on at your school but yeah these are these are tools either. that are uh, they're meant to they meant to go through flesh like a knife through butter you know yeah. so yeah, I don't know what was going on. All I know is they weren't particularly sharp. And yeah, I sold knives for mm. a very brief period. And I remember the thing that always stuck with me is that a sharp, mm. the, the sharper the knife, the safer it is, actually. Because as it gets dull yeah. and you're trying to drag it, that's when people get cut and that's when fingers fall off. Yeah, I also like the way that you sold knives, but you're calling me a serial killer. So well, let's, I didn't, <laughs> let's I didn't talk say about I used your knife them. selling. No, I know. But I may have sold them to a serial killer. I don't know. I just, you know, I'm a salesman. You I don't well. care who gets it. <laughs> right? Yeah, it, it's definitely better to have them. The sharper they are, yes, definitely, because you don't want to have to put some force behind them. And one of the, the most unusual things that we used to get taught in mortuaries um is that when you drop a knife, you have to let it fall because human instinct oh, is to try yeah. and catch it. Yeah. And of course, if you do, it's going to just chop your fingers off. And it, it is one of those instincts that takes a long time for you to get over when you stop working in mortuaries because you just you let things go. <laughs> no, I've got reflexes like a cat. I'm always really surprised. Like I'll drop a glass, you know, when I'm doing the dishes and I catch it and I think, good Lord. You right. know, there were years when I just would let that drop because <laughs> right. it was what I was trained to do, you know. <laughs> glass would just have to hit the floor. I will tell you this without tooting my own horn. Mm. I have incredible... Mm. 
elite athlete level reflexes. And I can promise you my first day oh, yeah. in the mortuary, I have kind of have butterfingers. I don't know how those two kind of got smashed into the same package, but sometimes I have butterfingers <laughs> and I'll drop it. And I, I guarantee you within a week I would lose two. To, I'd look like a wood shop teacher. I would have two or three fingers. <laughs> promise. Yeah, and a couple of toes missing if you weren't wearing <laughs> yes, the right boots. Exactly, exactly. It's dangerous. Because <laughs> we have to wear dorsally reinforced boots as well, so they're like you know they've got metal over the toes. Yeah, oh, you, would, wow. you could you could lose a lot in a march. You got to be careful. <laughs> like you have, you have steel toe boots. You have to wear that. Like the whole boot is steel. Yeah, yeah. No, they're dorsal reinforced. They basically it's just over the toes. They have a, a metal plate just to ensure that you know you don't lose one. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, so a couple of random facts here. I'm going to go through some stuff that seems out of order, but it's how I have it written down, and I found these concepts very interesting. First of all, you've okay. worked as a TV and film consultant, and you you even talk about yeah. in the book how um, annoying you believe that you got to the director because they were doing so many things wrong and that you required them to do them <laughs> accurately because that's what you were paid for. So in your, exp- in your expert opinion, how accurate mm. is the movie Weekend at Bernie's? I've never seen it. Oh my goodness, you're killing my joke. Do you know what it's about? <laughs> what the movie's about? No, I think it's oh, just something Carla. where it's there a couple that walk a corpse through yeah. somewhere. Is that yeah. something that happens in it? I'm so sorry. You didn't tell me there was going to be homework before you did this interview. I just bring it on you. I don't know. I just wrote it down. I just assumed everyone saw it. I think they have to, they're like trying to get some no. inheritance and they have to walk around with this dead body and pretend he's alive, but he's dead. And they have to, it's for a weekend. Ah. And it's his, his name's Bernie. That's how they got the title. Weekend of Bernie. Oh. Okay, right, okay, well, I'm going to watch that now. Now that you said that, I'm going to watch it. But I always thought it was like a National Lampoon party type film. <laughs> I didn't really know it involved a lot of corpses. <laughs> well, it, it's not like a documentary film. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fiction well, film. Well, no, <laughs> but I didn't, yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah. It's not a Werner Herzog, Herzog movie, but it's, yeah, it's very interesting um, the, the, just mm. to see like how, they, how ridiculous it is. I think you'd have a field day with it. You should watch it. We'll do a follow-up on Weekend I really did. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's uh, do like basically the 10 sort of myths of Weekend <laughs> at Bernie's or something. <laughs> I love it. I love that. That's a great idea. Uh, another concept. It kind of involves TV and film, but you talk about Locard's exchange principle. Which is, I'm sure this is just oh, yeah. showing up in movies, but every touch leaves a trace. Again, if you're a serial killer, you need to start listening up to this because this is how you can get caught. Yeah. Explain that concept to me. Okay, so low card, yeah. It's, um, it was, they, they always say every contact leaves a trace. They, they say it's kind of, it was low card that first said that. I think it's probably been slightly misquoted. But the idea is that no matter where you go, you're going to leave a trace of you somewhere and the place that you've gone to will leave a trace on you. And so that's the reason, obviously, why it's very important that scene of crime officers wear the full white suits with the DNA masks and all that kind of thing, um, which isn't something that you used to see in early episodes of CSI, you know, Definitely where they just turn up at crime scenes yeah, with their hair just <laughs> all over the place and their heels on, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the idea. I mean, Dexter, as we've mentioned, kind of, you know, sort of encapsulates that when he covers everything with uh, plastic wrap or um, American Psycho, Patrick Bateman, where he puts his his mask on. I mm. know, you must have seen that film. I have. I, um, I have seen that film. Killers, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's the idea of low, low card uh, principle is that, yeah, wherever you go, you're going to leave a trace of you and take some with you. 
I mean, it's a it's a really interesting concept because it seems obvious, but you know, as you're talking about, I mean, not mm. only forget film and TV, but I mean, even police work has improved a million mm. fold since you know the '80s and the '90s. I mean, people were walking around without gloves on, just messing around with crime scenes yeah. and doing whatever. I mean, even well, you know, yeah. I mean, if people didn't realize that eventually, you know, DNA was going to be able to be extracted um, from scenes, and you know, one of the most incredible things that we've we've sort of sort of the innovations that we've had is that we can now extract DNA from fingerprints. So, mm, you know, many, mm. many years ago when people committed crime and left their fingerprints there, they didn't know that their DNA was going to be able to get, you know, possibly taken from from there. Um so yeah, we've come on leaps and bounds. But the interesting thing about forensic science is that um Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie kind of discussed forensic science in their in their fictional books before it was actually a reality and I think oh, that's I what's that. so interesting about forensic yeah they yeah. they kind of they, they they mention it you know Sherlock Holmes for example talks about the different types of tobacco and, and, and where they come from in the world and how we can use that to pinpoint somebody and that's a long time before people were actually doing that within forensic laboratories so yeah it, it's a, it's a really fascinating topic and i think that's obviously why i was so interested in it as a child wow oh that makes a lot of sense it's kind of the seed was planted and then it grew as you mm -hmm. grew with the technology and innovation yeah so yeah yeah so weirdly you know it was some of the most basic forensic science was happening at the time and then you had these people writing fictional books and going, you know, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll make this up and imagine this happens. And nowadays, those things are actually happening. So it is fantastic to kind of follow the progress of forensics and see how far mm -hmm. we've come. It is. That's really, I didn't, I had no idea. Um, now let's mm -hmm. talk about, so you just exploded me with knowledge here. Let's talk about two explosions in, in your history. Okay. We're going to hit the first one, mm -hmm. which is, I didn't know this is just a very tidbit, the small little tidbit I took from your book, which is that pacemakers, if they're not removed, will explode in a crematorium. Yes, that's right. Scary. <laughs> yes. Much, much, yeah, much to the annoyance of, um, of staff and everybody around it. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it, ha it only had to happen once or twice for, you know, for um, legislation to come about. Which, in which we would remove the pacemakers or the undertakers would remove the pacemakers. So that is something that's probably been um, around since the late 70s. We've removed pacemakers. The problem is when newer and newer prostheses and implants come in, people don't quite know how they're going to react yet in crematoria. So there are different prostheses that might go in your um, femur, for example, and there's been a quite recent cases of those exploding because they're full of saline solution. Mm -hmm. So it seems kind of like it takes, it takes an explosion for someone to go, ah, right, okay, we need to remove these before, you know, cremation happens. So, <laughs> um, but people learn, that's the thing, isn't it? You, you know, something happens and we learn from it and uh yeah but but that's that's been i think there's been several cases um of that happening and it often the doctor who may have missed the pacemaker or a family family member who didn't mention the pacemaker they will be liable for the damages oh wow but, you know to the crematorium and they'll have to pay pay for the damage <laughs> well that'll make you snip them out really quickly you also talk yeah. about how <laughs> when you're removing them there's two different types and if you do yeah. the if you do the technique for one, you'll explode the other one. Isn't that how it works? Well, yeah, basically there's two different types. So you've got pacemaker and you've got uh, ICD, which is um, a defibrillator. So uh, a pacemaker just 
keeps the heartbeat regular. An ICD has an electric charge in it, and if the heart stops, it restarts it. So because of the fact that it has an electric charge in it, if you use the same sort of process that you would with a pacemaker and you just cut through the wire, you will be electrocuted and probably die. So what you have to do when you feel, well, you have to make sure, I mean, for the most part, you'll be told by the doctors or the family, this person has a pacemaker or this person has an ICD, or you'll be able to feel it. Once you're experienced enough, you can feel the difference. Pacemakers are much smaller than ICDs. So, you know, that's fine. You'll feel it immediately as an experienced mortician. and go, gosh, that's an ICD. And what you have to do is you have to call in a team. They bring a computer, they bring their equipment, and they deactivate it, basically. And then you can cut the wire and take the ICD out. But you do not want to make the mistake of thinking it's a pacemaker. So you, this is why it's really, really important to have knowledge um, before you just, you know, start making cuts willy-nilly, as it were, and uh, chopping through wires. Because who knows what's going to happen. Because <laughs> you're basically like defibrillating yourself. I mean, it's an extremely large electrical yeah. shock designed to restart your heart or stop the heart of a living person. And that's what you're cutting through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it, it does have the, the ability to create this massive electrical charge, which is why they're much bigger than pacemakers. So, and you know, what's good about pacemakers, for example, is that they can be reused. Actually, we, we, we clean them, we disinfect them and we, um, we give them to the, um, to the lab and they can reuse those in third world countries and places like that, people who need pacemakers. So, um, I'm not sure what they do with the ICDs, but but yeah, so you just you just don't want to make that mistake. It's a rookie mistake, and it's it's one that you'll never make again because you won't be alive to make it again. <laughs> rookie move. Well, now speaking of rookie moves, yeah. there's another incredible rookie move that you did involving an explosion of a body. Uh, oh, yeah, let's talk about I knew that, that was one. coming. Yeah, this is an incredible story. Yeah, that's my that's my overzealous desire to impress my boss. Um, and go, oh, you know what, I'm not, I'm not bothered at all by these, these blatant uh, deceased, you know, family members of, of, you know, whoever, I can deal with it. I've done anthropology at university. Um, yeah, the PM40, the trusty PM40 is very, very sharp. Um, and when I was first kind of confronted with my, my first deceased in what we call the bloat stage, which is fairly descriptive I think and mm-hmm, um, very much so they become sort of twi- twice the size as they should be because of the gases that are created by autolysis and putrefaction and um yeah I just leaned straight over the top of the deceased as I would with any case and um did my Y incision straight through the stomach and just sort of rippled like a huge horrifying balloon <laughs> and I was uh, my, I, I say my face thankfully I was wearing a shield which you know is a good job but, but the smell still penetrates the shield and yeah I was basically it was a geezer it was a geezer of sort of fat globules and sulfur smell and um, fluids and yeah, I never did that again, ever. <laughs> I think in the book you said some boss... got in your mouth. Is that did that really happen? Um, no, no, no. Uh, well, the smell did. Yeah, Ugh. the smell because the smell will go around the face shields because that's just like a sort of um, a little perspex shield. Just <laughs> right, doesn't you block smell. It, right. Flash shields. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> block the smells. Um, but really, it was just a baptism of fire. You know, my, my boss could have told me, "Well, you don't want to do that. You want to stand back. You want to let the air out." Blah blah blah. But he decided not to. He decided let 
then I learned the hard way. Um, so as as I say, I just got over the top of it as I normally would, and you know, cracked on. And I was like, I'm not bothered by this. I'm fine, you know. <laughs> and uh, I paid for it, so I now, never did it again, though. <laughs> well, it worked. Well, no, no, hold on a second. So when when you lean over it, how come they weren't? Didn't you see them like start to back up a little bit and like you know get a smile on their face? Like they they had to know what was coming. I mean, they weren't standing well, no, around you, were I they? I was fully concentrated. No, as, 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 a, as a trainee, he was very enthusiastic about making sure I made a good impression. I was concentrating on my job and on the deceased at hand and certainly not looking at this sort of sly smile on my boss's face at the time. Um, you know, but live and learn. It's, it's one of those things, isn't it, I suppose? Like I say, it was, um, it was, much, it was a much better way to tell me not to do it than to actually use words because I... I'll never forget the smell or the sensation, and I never did it again. So. I can hear, I can hear it in your voice. You, your voice cracked a little bit when you said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The memories are still there. The trauma will never go. <laughs> Ten uh, years of therapy. Yeah, you'll get there. Um, but it sounds horrific. Uh, now, so now we've we've pat- let's let's get into some of the pathologies that you work with on a daily basis because th- there you mm-hmm. you really get hands on with some pretty interesting stuff. Um, and, and, and actually you have, uh, you have a, a YouTube channel where you, ha- where you talk about a lot of these things. Oh, you know, speaking of that, hold mm. on a second. While we're still on forensics really mm. quickly, you started this, um, this, this series on, we call it Clue in the United States, which makes a lot more oh, sense. Oh yeah. You guys call it Cluedo. Yeah, the forensics of Cluedo. I don't really yeah. understand why you call it Cluedo, but th- that's a conversation for a different day. It's just. Yeah, it's just what it is. Yeah, I don't know what it. it that's just what it is. Neither here, I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> but but like, you, but you started doing this, and I loved the first episode, and like that was it. There's there should be five more. What happened? I know, I know, I know. It's because I, I it's so crazy. I, I don't think people really realize how um, much hard work it can be to do, you know, to do YouTube videos as well as do a full-time job as well as, I mean, I'm in the middle of a master's at the moment as well. So I've got That's a dissertation insane. to write. Um, and then I was writing the book too. And then I changed my hair color from blonde to red. So I wasn't Miss Scarlet anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh no, <laughs> I don't look like Miss Scarlet. So what That's am I going to do? I will yeah, that was it. That was the main thing. That that I will it. do it because, I mean, I absolutely love that game, obviously, as, you know, being into whodunits. And it's something I played since I was a kid. And I will literally beat anybody that I play because I have a system. Wait, hold, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on a second. Mm. Hold on, Carla. Mm. I'm going to take issue with what you just said. I am oh, yeah. one of the greatest clue players in the world because I have an unbeatable system. And I'm pretty sure oh, my really? system's better than yours. <laughs> Well, I guess we'll have to have an online game of we will have to. Because... Yeah, we got to do this. <laughs> we can do that via Skype. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, this, stay tuned for that. Anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I did start it and I, I really did think, I know, I think it's a really good idea because obviously there are so many different modes of death in Cluedo or Clue. Um, and, you know, I thought it was great to educate people on the different ways, like a revolver would kill you or a noose or a lead candlestick not that we you know that's a very common uh cause of death right. nowadays i don't right. know we'll bring it back right, right. but um but yeah so i will i will do some more episodes of that yeah just um i just need to try and find some time to do it but yeah i'll be a very different miss scarlet i've got scarlet hair so i'll have to wear something completely different 
<laughs> no, that's fair. Um, so, so some of the pathologies, the one you talk about a lot, and I don't. This is I know you you talk about it a lot online. People can see it. I just want to mention it here because I think it's so interesting and it mm-hmm. has a history to it that's important to the place where you work. Which actually, let's really quickly mm-hmm. talk about that. So, so Saint Bartholomew Hospital is the oldest hospital that's existed on its exact same spot, and that's from since eleven twenty three. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was founded by a monk called Rahir. Um, in, yeah, around that time. I mean, the buildings themselves have been rebuilt, <clears throat> but it's the same. It's on the same spot, and it's yeah, it's the oldest in, in Europe or in the world, maybe. I think. And so Sherlock Holmes, it's actually mentioned in a Sherlock Holmes Holmes book. And you believe that a study mm. in Scarlet was written in your office? Are these all true? Is this all this? This is crazy. Yeah, yeah. So basically, Arthur Conan Doyle. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, because if I make it, if, you know, the thing about it is I get an awful lot of tourists bursting into my office. I, I wouldn't make it up because if anything, it just causes me hassle. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if anything, I'm in the middle of a meeting or just a change for the gym and somebody burst into my office dressed like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, long, long before I got there, this 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 was already well known. And um, Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, was a doc- he He worked under um, somebody called Dr. Joseph Bell in Scotland who was meant to be the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes Um, and Arthur Conan Doyle was studying medicine he would have gone on rotation he was at St Bartholomew's Hospital and in a study in Scarlet he talks about stone staircase and he talks about shelves lined with pots now every single day I walk up the stone staircase to get into my office so my office the curator's office used to have a plaque on the wall um, which basically said all this and, you know, that, that um, Arthur Conan Doyle would have written Study in Scarlet here, not anything else, because he was Scottish, so he probably wrote the rest of it in Scotland. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the, that's the theory. Um, the plaque isn't there anymore. The plaque is now in the public museum down in the hospital, and that, as I say, has stopped people from bursting in on me when I'm in the middle of meetings <laughs> or, you know, sure. changing for the gym or changing to go home out of scrubs or whatever. <laughs> In your so building? That, people just bursting into well, your yeah, office they're, all the time? It's like a comedy. They're down on, yeah, no, they're down on the ground floor, and I, I'm, I'm up on like, the fifth floor. I'm literally up in, I have this kind of turret of my own. So oh, wow. um, I have an office and a workshop and access to the museum, and it's all in this one very small area. It's like a turret of three, four, and five floors. Um, and I, uh, I just kind of have to fend for myself up there. So. <laughs> wow, You're your own turret. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. Stuff. <laughs> um, so, let, so, so anyway, let's talk about this. This before we run out of time, I gotta get. We gotta get. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. So you talk about it a lot, mm-hmm. and again, I apologize if I'm making you repeat a story, but you talk about sweeps cancer of the scrotum, and how. You, first of all, it doesn't really exist anymore, but like it kind of explains. Mm-hmm. It kind of explains cancer to me in a nutshell. On how cancer forms, because everyone's yeah. the, no one is. Oh, we don't really know how. No, it's this is the type of this is exactly what we're talking about. Something that existed before mm-hmm. and no longer exists. So we know the cause and we've stopped it. Yeah, and and how it was discovered. Uh, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, so sweet um, cancer of the scrotum is, um, I mean, it's a specific type of cancer. And that's the thing about cancer is there are an awful lot of different types. But um, this one was very specific for for, for lots of different reasons. It, it, it's famous, or it should be, I think. Um, young boys sent up chimneys in the Victorian era, you know, sort of early 1800s, usually naked, 
which is awful because in, in Germany and Belgium, a lot of their chimney sweeps actually had some PPE, personal protective equipment. But in England, they used to be naked or, you know, didn't have very much clothes on. Going up chimneys, cleaning them out. Um, and of course, soot has carcinogens in it. And we kind of know that now, but people didn't know that back then. So what would happen is if you think about the human body, think about the different parts of it, some are smooth, some are not, some are what we would call wrinkly. Um, the testicles are a very wrinkly environment, um, to put it sort of nicely. And we call the, the wrinkles in testicles rugi. So what would happen is the soot would settle into the rugi of the testicles and because the boys didn't get washed and you know didn't bathe the way that the you know the higher classes would that sort of certain dirt would stay there for many many years and then eventually it would cause what looked like genital warts and that was usually by the time they were around 15 or so so if they've been up the chimney since they were eight or nine they would get the warts by the time they're about 15. it was considered for a while that they were possibly sexually transmitted um, then they developed into cancer, sweet cancer of the scrotum. And that observation is what we call the beginning of epidemiology. So epidemiology is the, the study of, of, of where diseases come from and why. Um, and it was this idea that soot obviously is a carcinogen and it caused um, that cancer in those people in that specific area at that specific time. And we don't get any more, as you rightly say, because people don't go up chimneys and sleep them anymore without any PPE. So they're really, really important examples of how far we've come in medicine um, and how we diagnose diseases and how, how we created epidemiology. Well, and, and St. Bart's very own Percival Potts, who was friends with Godric Gryffindor, he was the first one to, <clears throat> to kind of make the connection between malignant diseases and occupation. Yes, absolutely. He is literally called the father of epidemiology, and he he had noticed it in in the sweeps in you know the late 1700s when he, when he was around. Um, the, the examples that we have are from sort of mid to late 1800s. So you can see that there was still a very long period in time. I mean, it's it's the same with a lot of things now. You know, we begin to learn, and it takes an awful lot of time for things to be put in place. You know, movements to be put in motion to kind of stop those things happening, but this idea that what what these kids were doing and what these workers were doing was causing um, illnesses is really what gave rise to our Health and Safety at Work Act. You know, I think we at the moment we use Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, um, but without all those occupational problems that we, we have in our collection, I mean, and there's plenty more, you know, there are butcher's fingers that have been pulled off by hooks um, there is a scalp that's been ripped off a girl who worked in a box factory. There's a mandible of a kid whose head got caught in the rollers of a printing press. Jeez. All of those specimens are what basically gave us this idea of health and safety at work. So, you know, we need to be thankful, really, I guess, for their sacrifice <laughs> and how it protects <laughs> us nowadays. Um, even though we keep, you know, I don't know whether it's the same in the US, but over here people are like, oh, it's health and safety gone mad. And I, I feel like saying, no, come in, come into my workplace and you'll see why we have health and safety. Yeah, no <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a reason. Uh, yeah, so, so they're, they're really, really fantastic um, specimens. And funny enough, I've not done a YouTube uh, video of that. I don't think. Oh, no, I have. I have done a YouTube video of that one. But there's another one um, called Fossy, Fossy Jewel phosphorus necrosis of the jewel and that video is coming soon that's another very interesting one oh coming up 
Uh, yeah, this is this is all the pathologies that you go through are very interesting. So now let's let's move on to to what I think is one of the coolest things that you've done. Um, and we're gonna get to some more pathologies. Um, I, I'm gonna keep you afterwards. We're gonna talk about pathology. So look look for the bonus episode to hear more about what Carla does on a daily basis, and it'll blow your mind. Trust me. I'm very excited mm-hmm. to ask some of these questions. But let's talk about what I think is one of the coolest things that you've done is you've created a dating site. That's for people mm. in the death industry. I, I, dating site's a strong word because it's actually not necessarily a dating site, but it's you know it's a way for people to meet other people in the death industry because it's a very sensitive industry. It requires someone who really understands people who are in it. I think mm. it's one of the, the one of the few industries that really is kind of you know um, I, not like a guild, but you know people in it will only understand. The, yeah, other people in it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So tell me about how you got started and why. Yeah, so so I I kind of describe it as a dating and networking site for for, for deaf professionals because I think I, I was looking at LinkedIn at one point and I thought, oh, you know, I wish I could just find people who were in my profession on LinkedIn as opposed to, you know, just everybody everywhere. Um, and another reason that I came up with it is because I met my other half on a dating site, funnily enough, um, five years ago, and he isn't in my profession, which is usually the first question that people ask. <laughs> but well, he's, you said he's he very is not. kind of open. He is not. No, no, he he works in the music industry, but oh, he's, wow. he's very interested in what I do, and he's very kind of open to it. And I think the two the two ideas just sort of collided, really, because I thought, well, you know, often I'm trying to find people to talk at Bart's Pathology Museum because I put on a series of public engagement seminars. So I might think, you know, I'd like an embalmer to come and have a a talk about something or or whatever. And I was like, I really need to find like a a database of all these people. And then I realized there just wasn't one out there. So I created it myself. But the other reason is because I I, my master's is in... um, human remains display and the sort of sexualized gaze and so death and sex and how they interact is kind of what I study academically so I figured well if anybody's going to create a dating site for death professionals it has to be me <laughs> like I won't allow it to be anybody else it has to be me so um so I oh I'm sorry I gotta go back for a second before every... so you said your yeah. master's <laughs> your master's your the study of your master's work is human remains mm. and the sexual gaze Yes, absolutely. Nothing serial yeah, killer yeah. about that. Just wrapping it up. Right no, so, no, 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 no. <laughs> what exactly do well, you mean by I mean, that? Well, if I mean, you can take this back to, we can talk about the 1700s, um, wax anatomical venuses, very beautiful wax creations. Um, you must have seen them. They have long human hair. They wear pearls. They wear tiaras. And yet their abdomens are open as if they've had an autopsy and all of the organs are made out of wax. And medical students used to use them to kind of learn their anatomy. And they even used to have pubic hair and that sort of thing. So there's this question as to why they have to look very sexualized if they are to be educational tools. Then when you move to the 1800s, we used to have anatomy museums that were open to the public. They were then closed down by the Obscene Publications Act because doctors thought that the general public shouldn't see things like genitals, things like syphilis and other sexually transmitted diseases. And even now, Gunther von Hagen's Many people are familiar with him. There was there is a lot of controversy 
with his display um, of human remains, but more so when he puts them in sexual poses. So, so my my masters is to actually go through 300 years worth of the sort of problems between displaying human remains and our sexualized gaze. Hmm. Does that make it more? Does that make more sense? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um, <laughs> well, when you read my dissertation, it will make it will make more sense. <laughs> sure. Well, we're, yeah, because it just raised about three hundred more questions. But the the yes, moral exactly, of the, exactly, sto- yes. <laughs> the moral of the story is you wouldn't let anyone else create a dating site about the death industry. You had to do it. I like that. I like yeah. that mentality. It had, to, it had to be me because that's that's what you know. That's what my whole blog is about. It's all about the, the different connections between sex and death, and there are, there are thousands of them. You know, I'm not crazy. And Freud even talks about them. You know, everybody knows about the libido, which is the life force, the, the sex force. People don't know on the other side of the coin, we have the mortido, which is the death drive. So there is an awful lot of kind of crossover between sex and death. Hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting concept. I didn't think about it much. Had we gotten into this earlier, I would we'd probably talk for the next four hours on that. I find that topic very well. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's a different podcast, isn't yeah, it? You snuck it in podcast. at the end. I like that. <laughs> Nicely done. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, so, what's your blog so people can check it out so that so that I don't have to bore them with four hours of my my interrogation. That's the chickenthedead dot com. So I mean, if if you Google like Carla Valentine or the Chicken the Dead, which is what I come upon as my social media, it's um yeah, the Chicken the Dead, which is a pun on the quick and the dead. But I never know quite how many people get that pun, you know. <laughs> I, I got it, but the, I do see how people. Yeah, the quick I, and the dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the Chicken the Dead, and 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 it'll come up. So that's the blog. Now you also have a book, this Past Mortems. And that's yes. it's out, it's correct? Yeah, Passmortems in the UK. Yeah, yeah, Passmortems in the UK. And for American audiences, it's got a different cover, and it's called The Chick and the Dad, again. So it's, it's the same book, but two different colors. Well, so how come you went with two different, just, is that market research, just decided that, he, that uh, Americans needed to have it dumbed down? Yeah, that's... It's just what the it's just what the publishers decide. You know, um, you sort of sell the book to a different audience, and then they decide how they how they're going to market it. So, but I know a lot of people prefer the the past mortems cover. You know, but it, it just depends, really. It's, it's hard to say. So, but yeah, it's the same book because a lot of people think I wrote two books, and I'm like, good grief, <laughs> no, not in this, not in the amount of time. <laughs> I'm still promoting the I'm still promoting the book. So yeah. yeah. Um, so the chicken the dead is, is the US book. And you have so you have YouTube. You're on Twitter. Um, you have Instagram accounts, and you also have an Instagram account for the uh, for the for the pathology museum, correct? Called Remains to Be Seen. Another pun. That's right. Yeah. So that's that's for my research. Really, it's kind of it's what helps me um, with my sort of talking in my essays and my dissertation for my masters because my masters is all about exhibiting the body, and um, so I'll post different pictures, whether it's things that I'm working on or things that I've seen in the news. Um, for example, a fashion student that's creating handbags and leather jackets out of Alexander McQueen's sort of skin by growing cells. You know, different ways in which we display human remains. It's, it's, it's literally a fountain of knowledge if you go over there. Yeah. Necklaces, you know, um, just, just anything to do with human remains in display. And then I can kind of take people's opinions and and use those for my research and interact with them and see why they think one thing is more, you know, um, a bit more offensive than another thing. And, yeah, it's a really, really fantastic resource for, for talking about human remains. 
Well, I will have links to all this stuff on the website. I got to tell you, as you just said that, everything you're saying is making me think of something else. Ed Gein uh, was considered <laughs> one of the greatest serial killers of all time. Uh, died in prison <laughs> for wearing human remains, and then today we're using it as fashion statements simply because we grew it in a in a lab. That's a whole nother yeah. podcast as well. Very interesting uh, the yeah. innovations. <laughs> um, well, so you're going to stick around and talk about pathologies. Um, so please listen to that bonus episode. But for now, I'm going to say thank you for being on the program today. This has been extremely educational. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And you can also subscribe to my very witty newsletter in which I will tell you about upcoming guests, upcoming projects. And if you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. And if you like this, you'll like the other things that I do. All of my projects can be found on DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.